Hello, it's Paul Newbegin from The Pass Podcast. Thank you for downloading this episode of The Pass and welcome to part two of the MasterChef specials. So to celebrate the return of MasterChef The Professionals, I've been meeting with previous winners and finalists from MasterChef and chatting about their journey. In this episode, I meet Nick Bennett and Stephen Edwards. Hi, my name's Nick Bennett, um, 2015 MasterChef Professionals finalist, uh, currently working at Restaurant 56 in Barrington, Oxfordshire. Hello mate, welcome to the Past Podcast. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure, how are you? Yeah, good, thank you, good. On a night off at the moment, so I can't complain. <laughs> a very rare night off, I'm sure. Yeah, well, we're not overworked, but yeah, they are a blessing. <laughs> <laughs> overworked and under something else. <laughs> well, we that's a different podcast. <laughs> So I'm going to fast forward you very quickly until after MasterChef's gone out. I'm going to do it almost in reverse. Can you almost describe that time that it just gone out and then all of a sudden everybody's interested in you and you'd done so well? And what was that like for you? Was it a bit crazy? You have to keep it really quiet when you've filmed. So when the advert came out, I was getting bombarded with messages. People asking me, have you done MasterChef? And I was like, well... Yeah. <laughs> and then it's like, well, how, how far do you go? And I'm like, well, just watch the program and enjoy it. And then obviously as the weeks went on, I was getting more and more noticed in the streets. And in Farringdon's not a big area. So <laughs> I was walking around Tesco's and people were talking to me about it. And yeah, it was brilliant. It really puts you in the limelight. It all depends on how far you get, I guess. So it was really nice. I got to the final and I was in the first and the last episode. So yeah, it was a real talk of the town for ages and my family were dead chuffed, dead proud. So it was brilliant. Was it really difficult then to keep your mouth shut, knowing that you'd done so well? Yeah, it was really difficult because I finished filming at the start of August and my series started airing in the middle of November. Wow. So I had a good few months to keep stum. And they are realistic. They know you're going to tell someone because I think my fiance would have left me if I didn't tell them what was going on. <laughs> and I kept going to London every week for a few days. So um, it gives you time to prepare, but you can't really prepare because it is the unknown. I don't know how people are going to react to it and how much business it would have drummed up. And we were very busy on the back of it, so which was great because we were a new restaurant at the time. So it really boosted us. How long had you been there then by the time you decided to go on to MasterChef? I had been there for 18 months and one of my lads said, you should apply for MasterChef, they're tweeting about it. And uh, I thought, well, why not? Because I was in a good position there. We weren't overly busy all the time. So if anywhere, it would be an ideal opportunity to go and film while I was at Sudbury at Restaurant 56 because I've worked before and I've not been able to have any time off in the summer, let alone for filming. So... It was an ideal opportunity and it really put us on the map as well. Was it not like, right, I've just recently joined and now I don't want to see any of you guys? <laughs> <laughs> well, I told the GM that I got through to the first episode and she was thrilled and they were really supportive because it is great PR for the company, it's great PR for me and it got a lot more bums on seats so no, they were quite alright. I was going in between filming, going back and uh, setting up on the pastry and then going back and filming again so... It was a bit of a shuttle for a bit, but yeah. <laughs> did you know then when you walked into the kitchen, obviously it's the first time for all of you, but did you know that it was going to be the very first episode or is that the sort of detail that they keep? No, you don't have a clue about the running order, though. Because I was going to say, that's I, almost sort of double pressure, isn't it? For us, I obviously thought I wouldn't be on first. Yeah. Um, but no, they just ran it in that order. And uh, yeah, I was featured in the advert 
my week straight away and they don't tell you any of that because it's nice to have some surprises i can only imagine it's pressure enough but then had they said right and this is also going to be the first episode like the (laughs) well there's enough pressure yeah first thing you do is walk in and see marcus greg and monica and that's enough pressure (laughs) you don't need anything else it doesn't matter so they could say anything (laughs) it doesn't matter can you even attempt to sort of sum up what that's like especially for like a pro chef who you know people like marcus and monica and greg are going to be so well known I was trying to prepare myself. We draw a number out of a hat into which number you go into the room. And I drew the last five lots of 30 minutes of waiting in the caravan. <laughs> not over what I was going to do. You prepare for the unexpected. So I was just trying to keep calm, not shake. And just walk in there and see, like, Marcus is smiling at me. Because I didn't expect to see him. Because the year before I was on there, you didn't see him until the round afterwards. That's right. Uh, so they were all there. They were they're brilliant and they're trying to calm you down and they're smiling at you and they're like, you're right. And you're like, no, obviously not. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I can't compare it to anything. It's just like a, just going into the woods in a pitch black and expecting me to find your way out of there. <laughs> By the end of it, did you kind of get used to serving food up to what I can only imagine is some of like your idols in the cookery room. I mean, yeah. I've said throughout this episode that Marcus Waring is the first chef that I really got into when I first started getting interested in food. So he would be like my probably biggest one. But even by the yeah. end, are you kind of like used to it or is it still a nerve-wracking experience? It's still nerve-wracking because even through to the end and even through to the one before we went to Italy and I was, was a vegetarian test, I didn't know what they wanted at all. And that was probably the most nerve-wracking because I made this dish and I was confident it would taste nice, but I was like, I really don't know how you're going to take this. And you cannot read Marcus's face. He doesn't smile. He doesn't nod. Like, Greg, <laughs> give Greg a, a bowl of chocolate and he nods away. And goes, oh, yeah, lovely. <laughs> Marcus and Monica, they just look at you, put the cutlery down, and they're just like, right, shall I go first? <laughs> and you're like, oh, my God, what's going to happen? And then luckily it was like, that was lovely, and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Who do you think of the two is harder to please? It's very difficult, because I think they look for similar things, but they have different tastes. I think Monica is slightly easier to please than Marcus. I think he will look at much more refined technical skill, whereas if you have the flavours, then Monica may overlook some little things. But equally, if you've attempted a classic technique and you haven't pulled it off, then she will punch you for it. She will make sure you know that you have not said what you're going to (laughs) do. And Greg as well, he's the customer at the end of the day. He's the guy sitting in the restaurant and he's eating the food. And it's all subjective. Food is subjective. So, But he's also so knowledgeable as well. So, Yeah, you know. very much so. And he cooks himself and he knows food. And he's eaten in more places than I ever will, I'm sure. So <laughs> They're all very hard. But with the professionals, you constantly have Marcus and Monica. There's a few rounds where Greg isn't there. They have a very good palate and they're very knowledgeable. So... Both equally scary. One of the things that I've spoke about throughout this episode is I kind of feel like as a viewer, there's a little bit more pressure on you guys as pros coming in because obviously amateurs don't have anything really to lose. You know, there's always, oh, well, he was just an amateur at home cook and there's going to be better people. But you guys, I don't think you obviously put your career on the line, but it certainly must feel like if you go away in round one and haven't been able to dice an onion that you're kind of going to have a few like sort of wounds to lick it does it would knock your confidence that's an excellent point i've always said it's a massive risk you can just make yourself look like half the chef you actually are could just knock you for six but i've always said the professionals is hard because you're going on there as a chef 
and you're getting set a challenge to cook and people at home are saying, well, you're a chef, you should be able to cook. So it's not as amazing as an IT consultant going and making a chocolate souffle. If a chef's going to go and make a lovely pork dish, that's what they are meant to be doing in their life. So it doesn't get the level of expectation as the amateurs does, but it can really affect you. I've known of chefs and I still meet them and I see them on social media and I like, ah, oh, you were the guy that did this on MasterChef years ago. <laughs> <laughs> and you still recognize them and, you know, it's just a reference point really. But yeah, if you really mess up, then it can stay with you for years. But then likewise, you must learn so much. And I wonder if even now, as a head chef of the restaurant, you plate a dish and you think to yourself, cool, do you know what? I probably wouldn't have done that if it wasn't for X thing that I learned during MasterChef, like you said, or your time in Italy or a technique you were taught at the chef's table. I wonder how often that happens. It does happen an awful lot, really, because of my trip to Italy to Alba. And the way that they run the restaurant was that they were picking out vegetables and fruits and thinking what would go with it so they'd have rainbow chard and their little baby courgettes and think what could we serve with this whereas we're in england we're thinking we've got venison and we've got trout what would go well with this so it made me look at more respectful in the way of vegetables and stuff like that Mm. and how they're treated it's important as the meat that's still with me now when i'm making stuff today you know it'll always be with me because enrico had such a respect for the grown produce because he was growing it all himself and you're in a different climate you're in a different world out there you can just take a tomato slice it and put it on the plate and be like that's amazing whereas we don't have that luxury but he was saying it's all about how you aid the flavor of everything not just the meat and the fish so yeah that's the biggest thing i took even again for me as like a viewer my favorite bit of the whole of MarChef, whether it's the amateurs or the pros, is I'm always most excited to see where they go, you know, where you guys are going to go in that last day. And then the other thing that sometimes they get is they'll have like a really big name chef oversee the chef's table. But I'm a restaurant fan, so I'm always like, oh my God, where are they going to go? Where are they going to go? You know, when you were told that you were going over to Alba, to Italy, to one of the, you know, most well-known restaurants, what was going through your head? I was so happy to be through to that point. I hadn't had the best chef's table around before. Yeah. And, uh, yeah we then cooked the vegetarian mains. And I was just like, I just don't know. If I couldn't get to the final three, being so close, I'd have been absolutely gutted to miss out on the trip abroad. So when they said, oh, unfortunately, Danilo went, which is, he's Italian, so that would have been unfair. <laughs> <laughs> and then they told us where we were going. It was just mind-blowing. To be honest, they could have said anywhere with a known and yeah it was just mind-blowing just to be told that you're going abroad you're going to work in a three mission star restaurant and you're going to go and have a time of your life it was just if you say to someone at the start what would you dream of doing in this competition to get the trip abroad is just the pinnacle really obviously winning it is better but to get to that stage was amazing again even like you say with the chef's table you've obviously got however many more of your peers so to have your confidence knocked a little bit like it felt like maybe it was and then to come back it it must kind of mean that much more yeah i mean i just i was over ambitious with my dish and it was a silly decision what i tried to pull off in an unknown kitchen but you know I picked myself up and went again in the final <laughs> four cook-off, just watching it back and Marcus, Monica's there, Nick's come back and he was the best cook in the kitchen today and he deserves to go to Italy. Watching it back at home, I was like, thank God, you know, <laughs> I redeemed yeah. myself after what I think was my only mistake in the competition. And then, yeah, it was great to be seen as not have that opportunity missed out because of one round, so yeah. A lot of the guys that end up there have got really strong backgrounds, but was that the first time that you'd been in and cooked in a free Michelin star? 
Yeah, I've spent time in Mission Star Kitchens and Sous Chef at a Mission Star Place before I was where I am now. But Three Star, yeah, it's just a different league. It is like the Champions League of cooking. It is ridiculous. What are yeah. the differences to the layman? Pure number of chefs. I've always had small teams of four or five, and I'm in a team of five at the moment. They had 24 there. You know, there's no blink of an eye. That's standard. Just the facilities and the equipment and everything that they have, it is just so polished. It's the creme de la creme, but you know that because you can look online and look at their prices and look at everything that they've invested into the restaurant. It's the pinnacle, really. But the thought process is things that you don't see that they go through as well every day. They're up at 6am getting the vegetables from their plantation and then they're going into work and they're finishing at midnight. And That's every day for them. It's normal. It's very different. It was amazing, though. What sort of stands out for you as maybe like the sort of, I guess, funniest moment, things that we wouldn't have seen behind the scenes? You guys must become a bit of a band of brothers by the end. I'm sure you've all got stories yeah. about each other. It was, there's so much going on. We're very close and we still are to this day. You know, we still keep in contact. From round one, you go in and they get your chef jackets on and they sit you down and say, all right, do you want a coffee to while you wait? And I'm like, okay. I'm a bit clumsy. I always <laughs> will be and always have been. That's why my family are amazed at what I do. <laughs> I'd always have a cappuccino and spill it down me straight away and then they always get So by the end, by the final, I was only allowed espresso and I was only allowed it before I put my chef white on because they didn't have any reserve. <laughs> so that was a little bit of it. But no, it was arguing over who was getting the ham sandwiches in the prep order and who was getting the bacon and brie. It was just every day, really. It was like being in a frat, really. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, and then just catching up with Greg and talking about, you know, what rugby team he should support, but he still says he's a Wasps fan, so he won't go down that one. <laughs> <laughs> so after Mars shift finishes then, you know, you kind of come back into the kitchen and as we've mentioned, you know, your career has grown and, and developed and now you're head chef. So how do you sort of like to run your kitchen now with all that you've learned and all the kitchens that you've been in throughout Master Chef and before? I mean, I've been working with Andrews, my executive chef now, for nearly 10 years, and we're very much a team still. I mean, he's promoted me to head chef, so that's a natural progression, but we still work together every day. We work together with the guys. I've learned that throughout my training that everyone has an impact and everyone should have an input on the kitchen, on the menu. You know, we say to the guys, oh, figs are in season now, we want to get them on. And have a little thing, what we can do is some desserts. So we've obviously got things that we've got lined up. We just want to get everyone involved so that everyone has their part on the menu, which I think is really important because you can have chefs that are just maybe a bit robotic, just doing exactly what, you know, the head chefs work and what they say. But we try to give them a bit of freedom. Obviously, everything has to be good enough to go on the menu. But my training at Mallory Court under Simon was just to be given a bit of freedom to be creative and come up with some dishes, which I think is a massive part of why I try and install in the kitchen. Do you look at your food sort of style now, if you go along that sort of route of having a style of food and think, oh yeah, you know, I can actually see that in this dish that I did in MasterChef or this dish, this style of cooking in MasterChef has really influenced what we're cooking now in the restaurant? Yeah, I mean, there was some dishes that I took to MasterChef and they have been back on the menu since and they've been adapted because of things but there's things that I've seen that guys have been doing on the show as well I was working next to them and you know ways Danilo would do some little things with panna cotta like I'm sitting there thinking right this Italian embassy chef is making his panna cottas and that I should really take note of his recipe <laughs> <laughs> I'd be a fool not to and it's very different cooking in MasterChef you have a time limit you plate it up once and then you go and leave it for half an hour and then they eat it so there is 
no going back. You can't just replay and then resend. Whereas in the restaurant, you can do that doesn't look right. We need to redo it and then go again. There's no time room for error in MasterChef. So it is a different style of cooking, I guess, in the different environments. But I learn a lot and there's little tricks that the other guys are doing that you can still talk to them about and ask for recipes if they share. <laughs> so what we do you know, throughout this episode is I'm asking all of our guests to talk about one of the last dishes that they served up to the judges. But before we do, I do get a lot of cringy moments talking about this because it's like sort of style of food because a lot of people just say, well, it's just taste and that's it. But I wondered what your take is on how you uh, have a philosophy around the food that you're serving at the restaurant? We try and say it's modern British with classical roots, really. We're all about big sauces, big flavours and stuff like that. But we try and put little hits of nostalgia in, which came across in some of my food, which I was doing on MasterChef, and it still comes in now. And it's just things that are called like lemon meringue, and we'll try and make you order it because you love a lemon meringue, as you did when you were younger. But there's going to be some little fun little plays on it, and... So, yeah, it's like modern British food with a little nod to nostalgia. But it's all about the flavour. It is all about the flavour, and flavour comes first. So when you're planning out your final dish, and it's the first time that you've sort of served three dishes to those judges, what was going through your head? Were you trying to go to your repertoire from the restaurant, or were you thinking, like you mentioned, look, I'm in these time constraints, I need to make something completely different? For me, they were initially dishes that I knew would work and that I knew I would get good reactions on if I pulled it off in that time and then there was maybe the odd dish where I'd take an element off or add an element on because I have there enough time but going through the first few rounds it wasn't exactly safe but I was confident I wasn't going to try and make something that could go wrong so for example my first dish with the pork polenta sherry sauce I know the polenta will set and I know I can cook the pork in time and make the sauce. There's no real worry about making pasta, making crispy potato twills or anything like that because if I don't know the equipment, it might not work or and a spooner that won't work. So early doors was a bit just holding back, holding my cards close to my chest and then just releasing them as I went through the competition and just being a bit more adventurous. So can you talk us through maybe the one that you're proudest of or you're most pleased of, of your final three dishes? Just choose one dish and talk us through it and how you came up with it and why the flavours work and etc. The dessert for me was really good, but I'd have to say the mackerel starter, to be honest. It was, we char-grilled the mackerel after just a light marinade and a light water bath. And we, I served it with an oyster emulsion, which just has a real flavour. Like Marcus's feedback was that it tastes like it's in the sea. It was brilliant with the mackerel. And that's an old recipe we used to make back in Mallory Court with the Dijon mustard emulsion. And we've adapted it over the years and we put oyster in it. And then I made a tartare, rolled it in black radish. And it was just a really fresh dish with compressed cucumber and then just a crispy oyster beignet. I loved it. And we've had it on in the form of a canapé. We've had it on for special MasterChef evenings at the restaurant. And I'm sure it was going to come back round when the time's right. But yeah, for me, that was one of my favourites. It still must be like such a proud moment once you've got to the end of that and you're sitting again in front of these three people that you've got to know over the course of how many weeks. And did you notice how far your food had come on? Yeah, I noticed how much I was talking myself down at the start of the competition and then I was a bit more confident at the end of it and just a realisation that you've worked with a lot of great chefs throughout the competition and you're still going and you're still there and you're now in the last battle. I've been more and more confident going through the competition because I was a bit safe at the start in my eyes, but 
it was doing me well, so I carried on. But yeah, it was very exhausting, but it was absolutely brilliant. And it was aired the other month on Sky for somewhere, and I was picking up loads of followers from Australia and China. And <laughs> so I, was, I was Googling what was going on, and it was aired again, but I managed to watch a couple of episodes. It was, a bit cringy now, it was brilliant. I would recommend it to anyone. So before we wrap up, the one thing that I've been getting from all of the chefs in all of my different episodes now, because I sort of started to realise I'd done a whole first series and what I hadn't been taking away was just tips, chef yeah. hacks, so to speak, just to improve yeah. mine and the listeners cooking. What would be your ultimate chefy tip that just one thing to improve my cookery? I've always said this to my mum on Christmas Day because she cooks for tons of people. I say, get your veg blanched off, get it refreshed and get it back in the fridge. So when you come to serving, you just have to warm things up in a nice little pan of butter and water, salt and pepper. We call it an emulsion. So literally, blanch your beans, blanch your sprouts or everything and then just warm them through. You don't have to cook them all to order because they're already cooked. And then if they're ready to go, just warm them up, get them on the plate. I think that's a real good tip, especially for a Sunday lunch and people cooking at home. That's my chef hack, if you will. Oh, I really like that one. That's a very good one. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much for coming on. What's the best way for people to find out what's happening at the restaurant and to get a table? And Get on Twitter. We're at Restaurant56 and at underscore Nick Bennett and at Andrew J. Scott as well. Get on the Twitter. and We're very high on social media, so there's lots of offers on our websites, but you can all find it through Twitter. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Cheers. Thank you. Hi, it's Paul from The Past Podcast. Series 2 is sponsored by Welcome to Leeds, a new city platform showcasing, supporting and celebrating world-class events and organisations and all the various people in Leeds. Just like the people that I'm meeting as a part of our new podcast series available exclusively through the Welcome to Leeds food channel. Check it out at www.welcometoleeds.co.uk so my name's Stephen Edwards. I'm the chef owner of Etch by Stephen Edwards down in Brighton. And I've had the restaurant now for six months. Oh, thank you so much for joining us, mate. Welcome to the Past Podcast. How are you doing? Yeah, very well, thank you. It's been a busy six months for yourself. How amazing does it feel to have a restaurant now with your name above the door? I still pinch myself every time I drive down to the restaurant. And, you know, when you see your name above the door and to be like a restaurant owner, it does feel surreal. Is there that little bit more pressure now? Do you feel a lot more pressurised when you're doing service and when you're putting out food because it has to be 100% your food and it's your name? I almost feel like less pressure. You know, when I worked at South Lodge, which is like a five-star hotel, there was always that pressure from the company, if that makes sense, was because I've got my own company now. The only pressure that's on me is from myself. So as long as we're progressing as a team and, you know, we're doing the best we can do, I actually feel you know a lot more relaxed more freedom if that makes sense so obviously a lot of that has come to you since winning master chef and what i want to do is almost take you right back to the beginning to that first day that you kind of decided right that's it i'm going to apply how easy was it for yourself to make that decision to be honest it was quite a difficult decision only because i was already head chef at the time i felt i had a lot more to lose than i had to gain and just my recollection of the show would be, you don't want to be the chef that goes out in the first round. So for me, there was a lot of nervousness around it. And it was actually my boss, Lewis, who forced me to apply and forced me to enter the show. And I'm glad he did. When was the moment when you felt that, right, OK, yeah, this was worthwhile doing? Obviously, 
to end up and, and winning it, then it obviously is what yeah. worthwhile doing. But was there a time when, you know, you got through a couple of rounds and you thought, you know what? Yeah, I'm in the swing of this now. hundred percent. I mean, for me, I set like little targets. You know, I just wanted to get through the first round. That was a big target, to, you know, to do, <laughs> to kind of settle the nerves. But I think once I got through to the quarterfinal, I do think it's worth something, isn't it? It's worth having on your CV then for the rest of your career is to say you got to the quarterfinal of the national show. So I did feel a lot of the pressure drop off from the quarterfinal onwards, but I also felt this was there for the taking. And was that like uh, all of a sudden your game plan changes? I mean, my only game plan really was to do the best I could and just take each round round by round. The thing with MasterChef is you know the format roughly, but each year they change it as well. So they're always keeping you on your toes. But I think what was interesting is just I got to know myself quite a lot in the show. When you put through those challenges, you really get to see what your strengths are and what your weaknesses are. And I mean, as a chef, it's quite unusual to cook whole dishes. People find that strange. But when you're in a restaurant, you're on a section, you only get to cook, you know, a few elements of a dish. So you really do get to learn a lot about yourself. And was there a moment that you sort of felt genuinely flummoxed by what was being asked? Was there a moment that had been so outside of what you'd experienced so far as a chef? Or did it feel very natural as you were getting the challenges, you were progressing and getting better anyway? Yeah, I'd I'd say the latter. I'd say it was more natural, but uh, again, I was just surprised myself. Until you're in that situation, you don't really know how you're going to react. It might seem obvious, you know, when you're sat at home, watching the TV where you think, well, why didn't they do that? But when you're in that situation, for me, it just almost like came naturally. When you're given that challenge of, you know, a mixed box of ingredients, you think you're going to freeze, but all of a sudden like dishes are jumping out and you think, let's just go with it and let's just roll. And the dish was slowly put together. But I don't know, it's a a difficult one. I didn't feel out of my comfort zone, but then before every challenge, I was really, really nervous just because, you know, the the nerves are coming from what is going to happen next. You don't know what's going to, come next in terms of a challenge one of the things that i've asked all the different people that i've met up with which i think it interests me a lot is i wondered if you have moments now obviously opening up your own restaurant and you plate a dish and you think to yourself do you know what i probably wouldn't have plated this dish in this way or this style or cooked this ingredient in this manner had i not learned x whilst i was on master chef yeah 100 percent. this goes back to what i was saying about learning about myself and learning a style i think with edge now we've got a certain identity or a certain way of building up dishes that definitely wouldn't have come about without master chef and the reason i say that is only on the beginning rounds is say for instance i might use like four or five different ingredients and always the comments from michelle and monica would be just refine it a little bit more just bring it in don't try and be too experimental and i think you know those two chefs in particular have helped create the style that i've got today so how would you describe that then? How would you sum that up? You know, you must have like almost like a food philosophy behind your restaurant. Yeah. With Etch, we just write two words as each dish. It could be, at the moment, we've got a really nice like venison celeriac dish. And that's all we write on the menu and then build that dish around those two ingredients. We do use other ingredients on there, but they're not really at the forefront. So the way we kind of build dishes is like two main. And then if it needs a third ingredient to accentuate the first two ingredients then we'll add that in as well but you know on master chef i just remember like some of the first rounds i was doing like silly things like 
had this like salmon dish with like blackberry, apple, ginger and coriander. And in my head, you know, that's the kind of food I wanted to be doing, you know, because it sounds like a bit edgy or it sounds a bit weird. But <laughs> I don't know, maybe it's like attention seeking where you want to stand out. Whereas I think as you get older, you realise like to stand out, it's just by doing good dishes, you know, that work and taste good. What interests me, like you say, is that you almost expect that answer a little bit more from the amateurs version, you know, because again, I've said that throughout this episode that I feel like what you guys as pros, you have so much more to lose in certain respects than the amateurs do. So it's interesting that you feel like even like you say, as a head chef at the time going into it. So do you feel like it completely changed you or do you feel more it was like a natural evolution? I'd say it was both those answers. I would say it definitely changed me as a chef because as you go on, you get more and more confident and that's what you want. As a head chef in your own kitchen, you're confident anyway. It's your style or it's your dishes you believe are good. But when you go on to MasterChef, it's almost like all the confidence is knocked out of you at the beginning and then it's slowly built back up. I actually felt a massive transformation. I almost felt like I'd learned maybe like two or three years worth of knowledge just from those 10 weeks of filming. Wow. To then come out of that and be sort of that advanced. And then also, again, when you add in that sort of extra edge of being the winner, did you feel like all of a sudden everybody wants a sort of piece of you? Everybody wants to hear what you're doing and what's going to come next? I bet it was a bit of a whirlwind, wasn't it? It was a whirlwind and I loved every minute of it, but it was difficult. It was just like when I looked at my diary after winning, it was literally no days off which is exciting (laughs) but the adrenaline soon wears off and it's difficult to keep up with it all and it took me away from the restaurant took me to places I probably never would have gone had I not been on the show but you know I still remember when I won and we had to do the breakfast tv the next morning and I was on the train just in Horsham and everyone on the train started clapping I couldn't believe it you've gone from just an ordinary chef to being recognized you know in the street it's quite weird The other thing that's come out in this as well is that obviously you've been sat on the knowledge that you've won for however long. So you've obviously also then had a period of months knowing that you've won, but very few people kind of know who you are. And then all of a sudden it comes out and (laughs) and there you are. Yeah, it's really surreal. I mean, there's so many different feelings you feel because after winning... I felt it's almost like an anti-climax because you can't tell anyone, you can't celebrate. And then you've got to keep it a secret for six months, which at the beginning was more difficult. But in the end, you almost forget that you won because it's been a secret for so long. And then even when the show's being aired, I start, you know, I started doubting whether I did actually win. (laughs) You know what I mean? Because it had been so long since it happened. You know, you, you don't want to forget what happened, but you haven't really had a chance to speak about it. And then all of a sudden now everyone's asking you questions and you're seeing yourself on the show, which is cringy enough. But then you start thinking, well, what if they did announce a different winner? You wouldn't have a leg to stand on, would you? Yeah, what if somehow in the editing they'd go, actually, we've changed our minds. (laughs) Yeah, but all these feelings were going through my mind, you know, just thinking it's such a weird experience to go through. And even like we just touched on, even going from just winning all that exposure and everyone wanting to get a piece of you, So then, you know, like two years down the line where it's completely dropped off again, you know, to be brought back up with the restaurant opening. It's such a fickle industry and it's just a roller coaster of emotions. You must be pleased, though, because obviously like I'm based in Leeds and you're based in Brighton and I'm still, you know, very much aware of 
what's going on at the restaurant you know follow you guys on twitter i've been across your website i see that you're getting great reviews so you must be pleased now i mean i'm chuffed a bit the way i've always thought about it is you could be like the greatest chef or artist or or anything but if no one knows who you are if there isn't a usb it's really difficult for people to relate or to connect with you isn't it you know i could be the same chef without master chef but i wouldn't have this exposure or this platform to do what i do to make it into a business especially with what i'm doing which is quite niche in terms of having a monthly change in tasting menu i don't know whether without master chef that would be possible Mm. did you feel any pressure certainly maybe the first drafts of the menu to have something like a dish that you would have done on MasterChef just so your customers would have recognised it? Or did you almost want to completely go away from that? That's a really good question. I didn't feel any MasterChef pressure, and that might be because it was... A little bit of a gap. Yeah, it was three years after winning that I opened a restaurant. But I guess with the pop-ups and stuff, when I first started doing those, so I won in December and then I did my first pop-up in January, there was always that MasterChef element on there. You know, those times where I do MasterChef tasting menus where it would just be like different dishes throughout the show but to be honest after doing it for you know so many times you almost get sick of those dishes yeah it must be because again like you say even since the show you must have sort of grown and moved on yeah for example like after you know the master chef winning three course menu i mean i'm not even lying when i say we must have done it about five thousand times oh really like it's just you know at south lodge because i stayed at south lodge for a year after the show so we're doing it on weddings, we're doing it on banquets, you know, we're doing it in the restaurant. It was just like, I mean, we're all sick of it, to be honest. <laughs> oh, well, this isn't going to bode very well, because I was about to ask you to talk me through one of the ones that you did. Are you going to hate me talking through it? Yeah, but you know, when you have to keep doing something over and over again, it's like, what was nice and refreshing is that every time I spoke to someone, for them, because it was the first time they'd eaten it, they were enlightened with it all, but... You know, I was just like almost feeling like, how long is this going on for? Because as a chef, you constantly want to change things and adapt them. But, you know, to do a dish that you did a year before exactly the same is quite rare, I think, in a kitchen. I'll tell you what, then, you're going to be the last guest on this MasterChef special. So why don't we break the mould if you're bored of talking about those dishes? Let's talk about a dish that really excites you at the minute that's on your menu, because that to me sounds like it will interest you a lot more. Yeah, I mean, funnily enough, I can relate it to both, if you like. There's a dish that stands out in my mind at the moment that's on the restaurant menu that's titled Scallop and Cuttlefish. And now, although I change the menu every month, this dish is on the eight-course menu. And because it's shellfish, it's been on the menu since we opened, just because I love it so much. It's just slow-cooked Sussex cuttlefish, which we braise down overnight, dice it up, and then mix it with some orzo pasta, a little bit of lobster stock, and then some twine and grains cheese and chives just to finish. It's almost like a paella sort of taste, but it's finished like a risotto. And then we use Orkney scallops, which we take the scallop row and dehydrate it, blitz into powder, and then crust the scallop in that powder before roasting. And then it's just finished with a cuttlefish ink tapioca crisp. And that's it. You know, in terms of like the finished elements, it's three finished elements on the dish before we serve it, which is quite rare for me. But the interesting part is the orzo with that lobster stock is something that I did in the final of MasterChef as the main course. I did it with stone bass. Oh, right. Um, okay. Yeah. And I didn't I remember. use the cuttlefish ink. I used, it was just the lobster stock again, just finished with the cheese and chives, but I also served that with kohlrabi 
which again was interesting. We just did lots of different elements of it. So it was blackened kohlrabi, poached, pickled, roasted puree, and some raw bits of kohlrabi on there. But that's kind of like how I would define my style is taking a humble ingredient like the kohlrabi and then turning it into something different. And the only reason I use kohlrabi is because at South Lodge, we had a kitchen garden and all of a sudden, you know, with kitchen gardens, you get an influx of one ingredient. And I remember the kohlrabi came through the kitchen door and, you know, it's probably about 20 kilos and we needed to use it up. And I just thought, why don't we do something really different with it? I don't know if you remember, but the way we plated it up, it all like kind of fitted into each other like a jigsaw puzzle. Yeah, I do remember. You know, with like the black and the poached and roasted and everything. Yeah, so I do remember. For me, that was almost like the start of the style I've kind of got and adapted myself today. Before we wrap up, I want to talk about the restaurant itself, because what interests me and what I like to learn is, obviously, when you start making restaurants as chefs, your experience is in the kitchen and you probably have very little experience trying to plan out what your restaurant's going to look like and almost like what the identity is. So how did you go about sort of deciding that that's what the style that you do now and the identity that you have? How did you sort of come about that? For me, it was a difficult transition because I feel completely at home in the kitchen. You know, I know exactly what I need to deliver what I do. So that was one half of it. But you're right, the restaurant itself is really important. And for me, I had to kind of think of myself as a foodie, which I am, but what does a customer or a guest want from the restaurant? So it's almost working that out first before doing any design work. So I knew I didn't want it to be pretentious, but that's quite difficult when you're doing higher end food. So we just really wanted to strip it back and make it accessible. We wanted comfort and we wanted like a good wine list. And we put all these kind of things together. We looked at the space with a designer but we also wanted something quite edgy. And I think that's where, you know, those colours came in because we've got really dark blue walls. We use brass in the restaurant as well and a little bit of concrete, some bright orange chairs. It doesn't feel like a natural mix of colours, but when you see it all together, it looks quite cool and it looks quite accessible. And we just wanted to be different. Yeah, it's funny because the reason why I asked you that in particular as well is being based in Needs and you in Brighton, I haven't been to the restaurant, but just browsing your website and keeping on track of your updates, I can still in my head really sort of visualise the pictures that I've seen. So yeah. that was kind of the interesting question to you is because you've obviously made it stand out in my mind. You've obviously done quite a good job. <laughs> yeah, we just wanted it to be really different. You know, I did put a lot of trust in the designers as well because when they came back, you know, with the initial mood board and it was blue and brass. For me, like the first thing I thought of was like an old Navy ship. You know, if someone just says blue and brass, you're like, what the hell are they talking about? It sounds, <laughs> it doesn't sound like it would work. But when you see it together, and again, it's just looking back to the history of the building, it used to be a bank. So we've got that kind of contemporary feel about it. And I guess the only correlation between the restaurant and the food would be a contemporary element. Because I like to think that the food, you know, although it might seem bit modern or out there it's actually just got like a really nostalgic feel about it like some of the dishes might just be like beef and onion for instance which is like a really classic food combination we just try and serve it in a different way and that's exactly how the restaurants come about you know we wanted that classic format of having like bonquette seating in the windows and you know having a nice spacious seat we wanted to serve it up in a different way by having things like neons like a distressed ceiling in there but to make it more accessible for a younger crowd I think working at South Lodge Hotel, which was great for my CV, but it was really difficult for my friends, you know, in their 20s to want to go to that hotel and eat my food. 
just because it wasn't the restaurant that they would necessarily go to. And for me, when I had my first restaurant, I wanted it to be about me and what, you know, the sort of space I'd like to eat in. You actually beat me to my question there, because I was going to say it, oh. it must be a bit of a, like a reflection on yourself, you know, where you are right now. Yeah, and I'd say, you know, it all has to tie in together. You know, I think it's really important that it's not all about the food. And that might sound strange for a chef to say, but when you go out as a foodie, the food isn't the end all and be all. It needs to be good. We also need to have great service. Just things like the temperature of the restaurant, like the feel of it, the whole dining experience is more than just a plate of food. You need to make sure that you're ticking all the boxes. The only other thing I asked you to prepare, apart from talking about your dishes, or at least to have a think about, to end each episode, what I'm doing is I'm asking for your ultimate chef hacks. And essentially what that is, is just a tip. It can be small, it can be big, it can be elaborate, it can be simple. Just something for myself and for the listeners to improve our cookery. And I wondered what your chef hack would be. So my chef hack would be not to look at ingredient in a certain way. I mean, like an example of that would be, you know, like a cucumber. Everyone's got a cucumber in the fridge and it's really easy just to think all you can do with that is to slice it up and run it for a salad. Whereas in actual fact, you can do a lot with it. You can roast it. You know, you can make a puree, you can make a ketchup, you can do pickle cucumber. And I think, you know, when I started off as a chef, it's like your mind is restricted only to what you've seen before. So, you know, like if there's something you can do with another vegetable, why can't you do it with a cucumber? It's like what goes through my mind. So I don't know if that's a perfect hack, but it's almost like question every ingredient and question like why, why you do it in a certain way. Yeah. And I think you get a lot more from that ingredient than, you know. Do you know, and the funny enough, just before you said it, the first thing I went through is because I've just been pickling some carrots and I just thought, I wonder if I could pickle cucumber. And then funnily enough, as I was sort of thinking it, you said it. Yeah. But again, it was a master chef that helped me on that. You know, when you've got your mystery box of ingredients, you haven't got a lot of ingredients to work with. You need to do the best you can. I know it's such crazy, but like you do like a potato dough from rice, why can't you do a cucumber dough from rice? I'm not saying it would taste great. That's what should be going through your mind, you know, almost like, can it be possible? Will it work? Well, in my head now, I'm saying it won't work because the cucumber's too soft and it won't hold. But, you know, you almost need to open up your mind sometimes to do something different or do something new. I think that phrase that you said, question the ingredient, I think that's a, yeah. that is actually a, quite a good mantra, actually. Thank you for that. I, I, I like that one. That's a good one. I'm going to keep that as well now. <laughs> <laughs> no, you've made me sad. But yeah, question the ingredient would be the hack. That's a better way to sum it up in a shortened way. So listen then, what's the best way for people to get a booking in the restaurant, find out about what you're doing? I've approached you on Twitter, but obviously you've got a website as well. I think the best way nowadays to book is straight through the website. It's hatchfood.co.uk. Or like I said, if you go on there, we do have a phone number as well to give our reservations team a call. If the time and date isn't coming up, make sure you book ahead. That's all I can say. If you've got a special occasion coming up, get it booked in. We take bookings for up to three months in advance. Or like I say, just follow us at Food on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Fantastic. And as a part of the MasterChef special, I'm posting all the links to the people that I've spoke to in this episode on all the available spaces that you get the past podcast from. So if you're an iTunes listener, it will be in the description. It'll be available through Acast. And of course, as always, it'll be on my Twitter feed. So Stephen, you've completed our MasterChef special today. Thank you so much for joining me. I really, really appreciate it. I appreciate your time. No, thank you very much, Paul. Thank you very much, mate. Thank you for listening to The Past Podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe and follow me at Paul Newb on Twitter for updates on the next podcast. 
If you can, I'd really appreciate a nice review. Just leave a few words and it helps other people find us. The Past Podcast is edited and mixed by Adam Linder from Bespoken Podcasting. Craig Fields from Ambient Light provides technical support. With thanks to Ruby Chow for booking support.